A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to confront their innermost hate. The podcast where our history community sees a red fact and just has to paint it black. I am your regular host, Paul Babel, and I am here, as ever, with my good friend and fellow incandescent insurgent, Kyle Glover. Hello! Nice to see you made it on time, Kyle. Yes! He's literally just got here, having been stuck in traffic. Yes. Yes. Just like the cavalry. Yep, just in the nick of time. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for getting in, Kyle. Yep. Well, this week, dear Ragers, we are taking a dive into American history and one of America's more controversial conflicts, that being the war in Vietnam. And we are joined on this journey down the Ho Chi Minh Trail by historian and director of the Caltech Heritage Project, David Zeller. David, welcome to History Rage. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. All the way from California. What time is it for you there? It is 11.10 in the morning here in God. sunny Pasadena. Good Lord. Good Lord. There are, there, is, there are students in your facility that haven't woken up yet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so just to start us off then, you, you're the director of Caltech Heritage Project. Now, given the bulk of our audience is UK, and by that I mean a good 75% of our audience is UK, can you tell us about Caltech and then within that, what the project that you're directing is? Yes, Caltech, or the California Institute of Technology, has been around first as the Troop Institute that started in 1890, and it became Caltech in the early 1920s. Caltech focuses on science and engineering. It's a remarkably small school that exerts a larger-than-life impact in terms of world-changing research in science and engineering. Uh, In my previous work directing the oral history program at the American Institute of Physics, I got to get a really good sense of just what makes Caltech so special and how important its institutional history is. And so I had the idea to create the Caltech Heritage Project to capture and convey Caltech's history in astronomy, in physics, chemistry, biology at JPL, which... Caltech manages on behalf of NASA, 
and just capture these stories through oral history, through conferences, through displays, really to share both with the Caltech campus, many of whom right here on campus don't appreciate this history themselves, mm. the wide world of Caltech alumni, and then, of course, everyone around the world who loves learning about the history of science and engineering. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm a kid in the candy shop. It's great fun. Uh, so you mentioned there your kind of previous career with the American Institute of Physics. I mean, what, what's your background and what was your journey to ending up where you are? I am a historian of science and international affairs, and that really comes from my graduate work, the topic we'll be discussing today, Agent Orange in Vietnam. And I came to that topic primarily as a historian of the Cold War. I was interested in the Cold War balance of power, the issues of uh, the domino theory, the concerns that communist revolutionary uh, uh, movements would take over the world and the resulting concern from the United States and, and efforts to stop that. I settled on the issue of Agent Orange in Vietnam because I was also interested in the intersection between environmental issues and national security. And today, these issues are, of course, front and center. They're all around us, from deforestation to global warming to water security. And Agent Orange in Vietnam got me more and more involved in looking at the scientists, both the scientists who developed herbicides during World War II. And they were very excited about using them to basically make manual weeding of agriculture a thing of the past. If you now have a crop duster that can spray fields, the concern of how are we feeding a rapidly rising population now mm. sort of becomes much less because you can weed agricultural fields much more efficiently. Some of these scientists, when they learned that the United States was utilizing this technology in Vietnam, a war for which academic professors generally were not supportive in the first place, they got very upset about this. They studied the issue and ultimately they compelled the U.S. government to halt the use of Agent Orange and other chemical defoliants in Vietnam. And in the course of my graduate work, I fell in love with the history of science and interacting with scientists. I was very fortunate to be able to interview, do oral histories with most of the scientists who were involved in this saga. And um, after graduate school, I worked at the U.S. Department of State. I took every opportunity I could to involve myself in history of science policy issues. And after 11 years of service at State, as you mentioned, I went to the American Institute of Physics, where I directed the oral history program. Uh, being physics, uh, Caltech, which is preeminent in physics, loomed quite, quite large in my work. I got to meet some people here. We had some discussions, and lo and behold, in the middle of the pandemic, me and my family moved out to uh, California to start this new adventure. Good, and here you are. Indeed. The, the culmination of all that is landing on this two-bit podcast in the UK. Welcome <laughs> There you <aboard>. go. Yep. <laughs> so let's, let's dive into what our podcast is about then. So um, you've, you've alluded to the general subject matter, but if you would please tell our baying mob of history ragers, David, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, what is the one thing that you wish everybody would just stop believing? Um, everybody should stop believing that the United States, as a result of engaging in war and then ending that war, should not be responsible for the long-term consequences of that war. 
It is one of the great tragedies and issues of negligence in American foreign relations and in the history of veterans affairs that the U.S. government treated both U.S. veterans and the Vietnamese people themselves in many ways with utter disregard, with any sense of a responsibility to heal the horrific wounds that it created in the course of in the course of Vietnam. So any any idea that the government should not be liable either legally or morally is, as far as I'm concerned, rage inducing. And my studies of the Agent Orange issue uh, only only made that that belief stronger. And I want as many people as possible to appreciate that and to compel the government to take care of its veterans. We're seeing this right now with the burn pit issue in the United mm. States and the legacy of not caring for veterans is not limited to the Vietnam War. And in many ways, as, as a student of history, had the United States been more responsible, been more caring of its veterans, perhaps the next generation that served in the Middle East and all of the horrific illnesses that they're now dealing with, they would be better taken care of as a result. So history, is in, in, I feel it in my bones. It very much is part of our daily reality. It's very much a part of our national policy. Okay, so thank you for that. Uh, now, we're going to dig into a fair few of those details here. But again, being British, my knowledge of Vietnam is limited, to say the least. Even, even as somebody who has taken, taken an interest in the Cold War, the specifics of Vietnam, um, my knowledge is probably best served by watching Platoon, Full Metal Jacket and Hamburger Hill. And I had to out there to Tour of Duty as well, you know, one of them. But, and that I would say is uh, what a lot of people will think of in the world when when they think of the American forces in Vietnam. So for a start, how good a portrayal of Vietnam has popular culture actually delivered? You know, it's a really interesting question. The first thing that I would say is, to one degree, it's quite understandable that Western filmmakers working to create a film intended for Western audiences would focus on the Western or specifically the American experience in Vietnam. Mm. But if we want to take a, a global perspective, or at least importantly, a Vietnamese perspective, just a few numbers to throw out to demonstrate how imbalanced it is to focus on the American side of the war. So for the Vietnamese, of course, they call it the, the what we translate as the American War. And when you look at the sheer scale of what the United States did in Vietnam, it sort of beggars belief. There were more dro bombs dropped in terms of tonnage on Vietnam than the Allies dropped in World War II. Let that sink in for a second, just, just the magnitude of destruction, just mm. from bombs. The United States Air Force defoliated forests throughout Vietnam, pristine tropical rainforests, the size of the area of Massachusetts, hundreds of thousands of acres, forever damaging those ecosystems. And the Vietnam War Memorial that we have in Washington, D.C., that lists the names of the 58,000 American servicemen who lost their lives in Vietnam, if Vietnam had a similar memorial, 
it would be something like 69 times as large as what we have in Washington, D.C. So the sheer scale, the sheer scale of pain and destruction that the United States created in Vietnam is just far, far greater felt on the Vietnamese perspective. So while movies like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, Hamburger Hill, Apocalypse Now, they're all great movies. They all wrestle, I think, accurately with the essential horror and trauma and the unique horror and trauma of the Vietnam War. They also naturally perpetuate the Western sensibility to look at wars from a very one-sided point of view. Mm. Mm. So I would welcome eminent filmmakers like Oliver Stone and Francis Ford Coppola to revisit the Vietnam War, or at least to have Vietnamese filmmakers have their artistic sensibilities shared more with the Western audience. So that's just that's just a, a sense of balance when you look at these kinds of wars. Now, as they are, let me say specifically, one of my um, uh, uh, impetuses for creating this project on Agent Orange actually comes from a scene in Platoon. If you'll remember, Oliver Stone is a master of this. There's a scene where the service members, the infantrymen, are in the jungle. It's daylight, but it has all of the feeling or the trapping of a horror movie where it's a haunted house and the tension builds and you know some monster is going to leap out from the shadows. Mm -hmm. But those yeah. horror movies, they always take place at night. And so the idea there, which captures so brilliantly what American policymakers had hoped to achieve with Agent Orange, was that the American way of war, the American style of combat, is best approximated to, to football, or I should say American football, two forces facing off on an open battlefield where the stronger military force simply wins. Now, the whole basis of a guerrilla insurgency in Vietnam or in any tropical locale is that the locals who are obviously overmatched in terms of numbers, in terms of manpower, in terms of materiel, they take the jungle, they take the forest as a natural point of influence, a natural point where they can overcome these strategic and short uh, tactical shortcomings in order to pick off American forces simply by using the cover of the of the forest. Yeah. And so the scene in Platoon where you have this impending sense of doom that the the unknown, the invisible enemy is capable of striking at every time, I think brilliantly gets to the heart of why the U.S. government resorted to the use of defoliating forests in Vietnam, massively wiping out forests and the eco side, the, the willful destruction of forests and the horrible effects that this had on the people who lived there. So Platoon sticks out particularly in my memory for its ability to capture what the United States was hoping to accomplish in its massive chemical defoliation program. Yeah, would it be fair to say then that America recognized that for all its ability to win all the battles, it was losing the war and therefore had to almost change the geography to create a situation where it was capable of winning. That's exactly right. And the massive increase in the use of Agent Orange 
fits very well within the larger Americanization of the war. In other words, when the Kennedy administration first resorted to using defoliants like Agent Orange, it did so on a very limited capacity. It wanted to defoliate around um, shipping routes, around uh, uh, military bases. It was not the wide-scale dumping of these chemicals over enormous portions mm. of South Vietnam. When the Johnson, the Lyndon Johnson administration, as we say, it Americanized the war circa 1965, that's when you see this huge influx of troops. That's where also you see the defoliation program expand dramatically as well. So yeah. one fits with the other in terms of the overall Americanizing or enlarging of the war effort in the 1960s. So this is a really basic question, but just to make sure we're all on the same page and all our listeners understand exactly what we're talking about. What exactly was the point of the American involvement in Vietnam? Uh, what was the strategy and what was the what was the overall strategy and what were their what flaws and benefits were they trying to accomplish? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a fundamental question. It's a simple question that has, of course, yeah. a very complicated answer. So for that, you know, we really need to go and look at the concept, again, from the Vietnamese perspective of national self-determination. This is a goal of the Vietnamese people that goes all the way back to the French Empire it goes to the time of World War II and the Japanese occupation of Indochina. It goes to the post-war era where France and so many other colonial powers in Europe tried desperately to hang on to their colonial holdings as they did before the war, but simply lacked the power because of the damage that World War II had done to all of these European powers. And so after 1954 and the Treaty of Geneva, the French vacated and basically left the problem to the United States in terms of what to do. Uh, Ho Chi Minh in the north of Vietnam wanted to reunify the country, and he actually appealed to the democratic sensibilities of the United States and even cited Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence saying that he wanted a free and united Vietnam, just like Thomas Jefferson wanted a free and united America. I'm sorry for your British audience if I'm raising any sensitivities here on this one. But well, we, we know parallels... nothing about independence, <laughs> constitutions, we'll, anything like that. We'll look the other way for now, though. Yeah. <laughs> but Ho Chi Minh was quite astute in that regard. And just on the merits, he was making a very strong case. Of course, the problem that he was facing was that the United States saw the Vietnamese issue, as it did all local conflicts in the global sense, through the lens of the Cold War. And in the 1950s, after the Soviets had achieved the ability to have atomic weapons and then the hydrogen bomb and the threat of thermonuclear warfare and a global Armageddon that this would create, all local conflicts were now understood through that broader prism of the Soviet uh, struggle. Of course, the United States wanted to promote its version of democracy, highly flawed that it was, and the Soviets saw their course of action as 
the, the motherland, the home base of the Marxist revolution that began with the Soviet revolution of 1917, did not happen as Marx thought it would beginning in Germany. It happened in, in Russia and then, of course, the Soviet Union. And the Soviets wanted to spread that revolution and its communist ideals throughout the world. And so what happened in Vietnam served as sort of a microcosm for what was happening throughout the developing world, because what we see is the process of decolonization. It's happening in Latin America, it's happening in Africa, and it's happening in Asia. And so this provided a perfect ideological and political battleground for the Soviet-American competition. When these decolonizing states were fighting amongst themselves to work out boundary to work boundaries to work out who would be in control of the infrastructure that the colonial powers left behind the post office the banking system the railroad communication systems all of those things as these local either tribes or regional areas, or religions, or cultures, or whatever was fighting for battle within these old colonial-drawn maps, each side was looking for both political influence and war material, guns, essentially, bombs. And that was exactly what was happening in Vietnam. So while on the one hand, Ho Chi Minh was appealing to the so-called democratic principles that the United States stood for, on the other, he was an avowed communist. Now, as far as the United States was concerned in the Eisenhower administration, the prevailing assumption, the prevailing strategic way of looking at Vietnam was through what we call the domino effect. And that is, with the Soviets determined to support communist revolutionaries wherever they were, the idea was once one uh, regime gained power, that would be a domino, and then other dominoes would fall around it. So if mm -hmm. a communist revolution was allowed to succeed in Vietnam, it might then succeed in its neighboring countries, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, yeah. and the list goes on and on and on. So the United States determined, particularly by the time we get to the Kennedy administration and Kennedy's insistence on appearing tough, he was much younger than his counterpart, the Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev. He was intent on appearing tough. He was intent on um, preventing the dominoes from falling. And he also wanted to have more flexibility in the way that he checked Soviet influence. So where the Eisenhower administration relied on the strategic doctrine of nuclear deterrence, the, 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 the concept of MAD, mutually assured mm -hmm. destruction, in which the Soviets understood quite well that any provocation wasn't worth it if it would lead to general nuclear war, because then the Soviets would lose as a result of the overwhelming nuclear superiority of American forces. Now, the Soviets achieved parity by the time we get to the late 1960s. But even in the 1950s, a general nuclear war meant that essentially no one would win. It would be really bad no matter what. But this was Eisenhower's way to maintain and project American power. 
essentially on the cheap because it's a whole lot cheaper to maintain a nuclear arsenal than it is to commit American ground forces everywhere in the world where you were concerned about a domino falling. The Kennedy administration in the early 1960s wanted to move away to some degree from that doctrine and achieve flexible response. And so the Kennedy administration was willing to, on a limited basis, provide more ground support to provide uh, what we call American advisors who were not officially at war, like the military action that we see in Ukraine right now. The Russians don't want to call it a war. Similarly, the United States did not want to call this a war during the Kennedy administration. It was the presence of American advisors. And one of the great counterfactual debates in the historiography among historians of the Vietnam War is, of course, would the American effort in Vietnam remained limited as it was during the Kennedy administration had Kennedy not been assassinated in November of 1963, would the war have remained limited or would Kennedy have kept it as small as he did or would it have grown the way that the Johnson, the Lyndon Johnson administration grew it simply because that's what the times called for? It's a counterfactual. We can't know, but it's certainly interesting to raise that question. I'd like like to get uh, an opinion on this, actually, because you broadly answered the next question that we were going to ask already. But on the on the subject of that counterfactual, uh, and my apologies to our former guest Joe, Josh Proven, who came on to completely rant about counterfactuals. Um, but theory, and I'd value your opinion. For me, I've always had this suspicion in my mind that a lot of the escalation of Vietnam stems from the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that is basically because that deal of the Cuban Missile Crisis is pretty much kept under wraps from even a lot of people that were taking part in the Cuban Missile Crisis at the time. You you get this projection that American hardball got the Soviet Union to to cave in. And if if that naked show of force and that intervention can get the Soviet Union to calm down to calm down, well Vietnam must be a piece of piss. Yeah, that's really interesting. You could also look at it from the other way, which is what the Cuban Missile Crisis taught both the Americans and the Soviets was how to prevent a crisis from from overblowing, right? Mm. That what we saw in the Cuban Missile Crisis showed that by keeping lines of communication open, it could actually increase the likelihood of American and Soviet adventurism in Vietnam or elsewhere simply because it put in place an infrastructure, it put in place a shared appreciation for just how dangerous gamesmanship, brinkmanship can happen at the local level and how quickly that could escalate. So one of the takeaways might simply be the opposite, that as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis, American policymakers felt a bit more flexibility or wiggle room in its capacity to be more bold in its projection of power at the local level. So here's the thing with counterfactuals, whether they pertain to had Kennedy lived or what really was the influence. At the end of the day, the problem with counterfactuals 
is that they're untestable. It's yeah. like asking physicists to talk about the multiverse. We just simply can't test it. It's nothing that can be hypothesized. It's a, it's an alternate reality that, that never was and never will be insofar as we could see. On the same hand, though, you can look at it just in terms of a value in isolating the basic concepts of how important are individuals to history and how important are the larger structural issues that no matter the individual, those leaders would have responded in a similar way. Do you need Churchill for the uh, British defense during World War II or would another leader have come in? We don't know what the answer is, but we certainly can focus on what Churchill did and what others didn't yeah. do, just as a way to further understand his import or the import of any other particular leader. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you. Just while we're on the subject of leaders, then, um, there, there are actually five presidents in total. Uh, you've mentioned a fair few names going through. So there were five presidents in total that were involved in Vietnam. It's kind of, can you just give us a very quick kind of timeline of presidents and their involvement and what they do with with Vietnam? Sure, sure. I mean, again, so once you have the French departure from Indochina uh, after its strategic loss at Dien Bien Phu. You have the Eisenhower administration that basically is just attempting to hold the line, where it's attempting to prevent the reunification of Vietnam between North and South, but without committing a large American presence in order to do that. Um, interestingly, in one of the transition discussions between Eisenhower and Kennedy during the transition year before Kennedy took office, Eisenhower emphasized he was he was as much, if not more, concerned with the situation in Laos. And that only serves to show the 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 importance of the domino theory that yeah. one country, the strategic and tactical issues of one country were very much not isolated from what was happening in in other countries. And so from the short few years of the Kennedy administration, as I mentioned, Kennedy had um, a pretty strong appetite to increase the American involvement in Vietnam, but to do so in a limited manner, to not, you know, throw hundreds of thousands of American troops into battle and to look at novel ways of containing both the, uh, the, the communists in the north and the, uh, the communist insurgency, the National Liberation Front, um, or the Viet Cong, as the United yeah. States called them, in the South, who were 
obviously, you know, uh, of, of greater tactical importance in terms of propping up the South Vietnamese uh, regime. I call it a regime because it was highly problematic, both in terms of how it got to power and how it ruled, and because the, the NLF or the Viet Cong were, were strategically aligned with the North. Kennedy is assassinated in November of 1963. Johnson comes in, and by 1965, with Operation Rolling Thunder, Johnson fully commits to an Americanization, as I called it, of the war. And that's where yeah. you see the massiveness that I alluded to earlier in our discussion. That's really when it begins to take off in 1965. And of course, in 1968, Johnson decides not to run for re-election. Johnson is destroyed by the Vietnam War and all of the political crises that it engendered back in the United States. Nixon comes in with his so-called secret plan. He had a secret plan to to end the war. Um, that was also uh, a big lie and a deception. <laughs> he did nothing of the sort. There were back dealings. We have Christopher Hitchens, the great Christopher Hitchens, to thank in terms of all of his research into what Kissinger was doing behind the scenes. But the reality is that the Nixon administration had no real plan or intention to end the war. In fact, many of its most horrific years were during the Nixon administration, the bombing mm -hmm. of Cambodia, uh, the relentless bombing in the north. And so Nixon leaves office as a result of the, the Watergate scandal in 1974. The draft ends in 1973 for the United States. Uh, that 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 offers a significant pressure release in terms of all of the uh, protests in the United yeah. States, because many of them were related to the fact that uh, American boys were being asked to not being asked were forced to be drafted for a war that they did not support, which obviously we did not see with, for example, the the effort in World War Two. When Gerald Ford comes into power in uh, the summer and fall of 1974, by that point, it's only a matter of time before uh, American forces leave Vietnam. They flee, and 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 after that, quickly thereafter, that the South Vietnamese forces are overrun, and that's when we see the the reunification of Vietnam. Yeah. Which is where we are today. Vietnam is 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 reunified under under what was then a North Vietnamese government, a communist government. That is the government that we we see to this day. So many presidents. You can go all the way back to to Truman right after the war through through Gerald Ford, and then the problems, the legacy of Agent Orange, and so many other issues, the the scars that that the United States left. That's been something that all American administrations, presidential administrations, have had to deal with in one form or the other, from Jimmy Carter all the way to our current president, Joe Biden. Yeah. Thank you. So let's get into the, the main meat of this episode. Um, for a start, what is Agent Orange and how is it deployed in the Vietnam War? Is there a particular strategy behind its use? And why, why do they use this, this chemical agent? All great questions. So first, let's get to the name. Yes. We all know Agent Orange because of its infamy, because of the many ways that we know or suspect it has caused harm to humans. But before we knew any of that, 
Agent Orange was one of a rainbow of chemical defoliant compounds that were used in Vietnam. We had Agent Purple, we had Agent White, we had Agent Blue. All of these chemical agents were identified simply by that color that was um, on the, the, the barrel, the drum that contained these liquid chemical concentrations. Now, Agent Blue, for example, was an arsenic-based um, chemical compound that was meant to kill rice. It was meant to starve out Viet Cong, the National Liberation Front. Uh, many re regarded it simply as a, uh, as a war crime to use Agent Blue because the basic problem in the South is that this is not a regular standing army. So the very idea that the United States at the tactical level could delineate who was a combatant and who was an innocent civilian was essentially impossible to do. And so using mm. an herbicide to kill rice basically meant that you were starving out possibly armed insurgents, but also civilians as well. Not to mention the fact that you're targeting one of their main food crops. That, that's yeah. absolutely for, true. For the whole of Vietnam, yeah, on your side or not. Yeah, not just civilians, your that's own absolutely civilians. true. So the name Agent Orange, before it became infamous, it was simply one of the chemical compounds that the United States uh, turned to. Now, Agent Orange itself, we all know and associate with Vietnam because of this nasty byproduct called dioxin. Now, Agent Orange was a 50-50 mixture of 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. Now, 2,4-D is still in commercial use. You can go to your local hardware store and you can buy this chemical in Roundup or other commercial applications and go and use it in, on your weeds in your backyard or to get rid of those uh, weeds and the cracks in your in your sidewalk. So that mm -hmm. you can still use. 245T, the problem with 245T, and here's the next thing that uh, fills me with rage. So by the Americanization of the war, circa 1965 or 1966, the Pentagon military orders in all regards, all materiel, was more, more, more. This applied to bullets, it applied to bombs, and it applied to defoliants. And so the message to the corporate contractors, the producers of these herbicides, companies like Dow, like Monsanto, like Uniroyal, and others, in order to keep up with demand for Agent Orange, and also to keep up with demand for these agricultural cap applications in the United States, because as far as the policymakers were concerned, it was perfectly acceptable to use these chemical defoliants in Vietnam because we were using it on our own farms. Recall that these were chemical compounds that were developed for an agricultural application. Mm. And so these chemicals were used on American farmland. So between the exploding demand of the Pentagon and the fact that American farmers, U.S. consumers, still needed these uh, compounds for their own applications, what these 
agents did, what once these 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 corporations did, was they sped up production of 245T. Now, what does it mean to speed up production of 245T? You heat the chemicals at a higher temperature and more quickly than you otherwise would. What some of the scientists found, there's a whole story there in terms of some leaked documents, some things that Dow knew but had sat on because of the obvious explosiveness of, of the findings if this became public, was that 245T, one, one, the half of the mixture that made up Agent Orange, contained dioxin. Now, dioxin is an extraordinarily lethal poison. The Russians have taken to use it in, in some of their attempts to poison dissidents and other enemies in, in places like London and elsewhere. Um, and it has been linked to a range of health maladies, all of the ones that we now associate either uh, in a correlative manner or in a causative manner with regard to um, illness as caused by Agent Orange exposure. Mm -hmm. So this dioxin, and let me emphasize here, this dioxin had no tactical value. It didn't kill the trees any better. It was purely an accidental, a negligent, but an accidental byproduct of the production process of Agent Orange. It didn't help the devoliation process. And yet it got into the Vietnamese uh, um, food system. It leached into the soil, particularly in concentrated areas such as air bases where Agent Orange was, where it, where it was stored. And in areas of concentration where it was sprayed on a, on a massive basis. Now, to get to the question, the tactics or the strategy of defoliation warfare, again, I go back to Oliver Stone and, and, and Platoon. The basic idea was if you defoliate, if you, if you destroy all of these forests, it robs the insurgents, the, the NLF, the Viet Cong, of their strategic advantage of hiding in the trees. Yeah. So goes Almost like thinking. going in and cleaning up Stalingrad. That's yeah, exactly. That's right. Now here's here's another rage inducing irony of this entire issue. So in a triple canopy rainforest if you've ever been there, if you've seen picture, the forest floor actually is rather clear. And the reason for that is that sunlight does not penetrate all the hmm. way to the floor. Why is that? Because you have all of these tall trees. This is thick, lush vegeta vegetation. All of these trees are competing for sunlight and they're growing taller and taller and they're covering... Yep. So that basically it's all shadows and nothing of significance really grows on the forest floor. Where did the defoliating agents, Agent Orange and the others, where did they hit? Where did they kill? They killed that top canopy. They didn't yeah. hit the floor. And so guess what happens as a result? The top canopy is killed off. Where does the sunlight go? It now hits the forest floor. What can now grow as a result of the forest floor getting the sunlight? Weeds, yeah. 
like buffalo grasses, imperata, bamboo, things like this. Where do those insurgents fight from? They don't fight up in the trees. No. They fight on the ground. So what you're doing is you're dropping a defoliant that actually creates more weeds than it kills. That's right. And that fills me with rage just for the sheer stupidity of all of it. You know, to go back to thinking about the domino theory and mutually assured destruction, I've always suspected that there's a basic idiocy of the domino theory, the idea that, you know, if we allow Vietnam to be reunified, somehow that's going to be a major strategic loss insofar as the Soviet-American global battle is concerned. I think that that's, that's, you know, it's a stretch at best to, to, to put those two things together. But then when you get to the pure idiocy of the counterinsurgency style of warfare that the United States waged in southern Vietnam, which obviously did not work and in many ways was counterproductive insofar as the defoliation program was concerned, not to mention the utter thoughtlessness in terms of the United States' willingness to treat South Vietnam as a military laboratory, as an as an ecological laboratory. Now, again, I mentioned the scientists who were so concerned about this. From the policymaker perspective, their defense was, well, what? We're, we're using this in American farmland. So what's the problem? The scientific counterpart was, uh, yeah, but not nearly at the levels of concentration that you're using in Vietnam and not with the production methods. The yeah. Agent Orange that was produced and destined for Vietnam was not the same thing that went to the American heartland, went to the corn crops of Nebraska, if you will. Yeah. And so as far as the scientists were concerned, we have no idea what we're doing here. We don't know if it's going to cause death. We certainly know that it's going to cause ecocide. That's the title of my book, The Invention of Ecocide. Ecocide is the willful destruction of environment and the irreparable harm that causes to the people who live in those environments. So we know for sure that the crime of ecocide is being waged. And we know for sure that what is going to be the long-term ecological implications, that's something that we don't know yet, but we shouldn't have to wait and find out. Yeah. So, so speaking of the impact, what do we know about the impact of deploying Agent Orange in Vietnam, both to the Vietnamese and to the U.S. servicemen who were delivering it, handling it, dropping it? And the basic challenge here is delineating. It's an impossible challenge, mm-hmm. delineating the concepts of correlation from causation. Yeah. So. You know, if you're a 75-year-old man today and you served in Vietnam in 1968 in an area that was heavily sprayed, or even if you were part of those spray patrols and you handled Agent Orange uh, on an extreme basis, day in and day out, and you get a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Now, is that prostate cancer a result of the exposure to Agent Orange? Or is it the fact that you're a 75-year-old guy and 75-year-old guys get prostate cancer? So the basic challenge, the difficulty with Agent Orange and understanding 
all of the things that it potentially does is that there is almost no human illness that we 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 suspect comes from agent orange exposure that we know comes from no other area of exposure yeah. so the this the the parallel that i like to draw is exposure to asbestos and getting mesothelioma um um uh, uh, a cancer of the lungs now mesothelioma is almost always a result of exposure to asbestos and so from an a statistical mm-hmm. or an epidemiological perspective we can say with a fairly high level of certainty that there is a yeah. causative relationship from one to the other in other words asbestos exposure causes mesothelioma for agent orange there really is no single illness where we can say exposure to agent orange causes a particular illness now anecdotally when we look at birth defects in 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 vietnam when we look at all of the ranges of symptoms that vietnam veterans started to report in the years after vietnam just because we don't have the data that tells us more simply about the chaos of epidemiology the 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 simple inability to pick a point in time and to connect that with the specific illness and the resulting diagnosis so so if you you can go a, a great place to look in this is the is 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 the is va.gov the department of veterans affairs that now as a result of you know heroic lobbying on the part of lawyers um some some policymakers and the US capital senators and congress people and 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 the veterans themselves we now understand or we presume that there are a range of illnesses that have resulted from agent orange exposure so that presumptive assumption is sort of the bridge between not having a slam dunk a causative relationship that we can draw between agent orange exposure and a gil- given illness to an anecdotal or you know this must be the case so that's that's basically where we are now in the united states um there is always room for improvement in terms of the care of veterans affairs uh, veterans in the in the department of veterans affairs but for now i would say great strides have been have been made in the united states vietnam is a very different story and that's simply because of international law and the lack of jurisdiction or standing for vietnamese plaintiffs to sue the government now the sad state of affairs here and yet another thing that in, you know induces rage in me is that it should not take a lawsuit mm-hmm. to get the united states to own up to primarily as i see it its moral obligation to repair what it did in vietnam now what it did in vietnam goes far beyond just the agent orange issue but agent orange has been called the last ghost of the vietnam war it's the only thing that remains that you can really see if you go into the orphan villages and you look at all of the the, the horrific deformities that 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 we see in these children 
that some may have gotten this as a result of, you know, the genetic effect of Agent Orange exposure and how that's passed on from generation to generation. Some of them, we might list Agent Orange. Some, it might be the result of other reasons why these genetic deformities exist. Um, I was very fortunate as a uh, Ford Foundation fellow to, to go to Vietnam as part of my dissertation research. And you really can't see the legacy of the Vietnam War unless you look really hard. You can see it with Agent Orange exposure and the way that it continues to um, show its scars in the natural environment and in terms of the way that people there, and they're very comfortable with believing that Agent Orange exposure has caused this this range of maladies. So the thing that induces rage in me is that the United States has a moral responsibility, even if it's not a legal responsibility, to repair what it has done in Vietnam. And an easy way to start would be to remediate, environmentally remediate these hot zones, these areas where you still see high levels of dioxin in the food chain. You see it in the soil. Um, you know, uh, uh, grazing animals eat the soil. I mean, they eat the plants. We eat the, the animals or their, or their products. And into the human uh, system it goes. And so this will continue until the United States has something like a a Marshall Plan, an environmental Marshall Plan for these areas that that were environmentally uh, affected. So it's a legacy that we began immediately once these problems were known during the Vietnam War. And here today, the problems have not gone, gone away. And the fact that the United States can in many ways hide behind the way that International law lacks that jurisdiction to compel the United States to, 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 to make these reparations. That is, that is highly problematic. In the United States, the government should be better than that. You mentioned um, a lot of the effect on veterans and things like that. And one of the things that I was noticed, going back to our sort of pop culture references that we made at the start of this, sort of both film and music to some extent have painted veterans as abandoned hated back home um hamburg hill does this very subtly but very well with just getting when he gets the letter for, from his girlfriend to say that it's over because of what the people at college were saying um and of course paul Hardcastle's um tune 19 that protest song makes that point very very well not to mention that the pretty vietnamese people are pretty much abandoned at the end as well what what actually has been the aftermath for the people that were involved in that war both US and Vietnamese. And let's not forget, I suppose, you know, Australian and there are other nationalities as well, but we might save that rage for somebody else. That's a great point. And, 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 you know, you know, lo and behold, I should not, when I complained about the American perspective, when we talked about films, I've been talking about the American perspective, but it is true that the Vietnam War was an international conflict and there were service members from a number of countries, including Vietnam, that that dealt with the Agent Orange. I'm sorry, with in Australia that dealt with the with the Agent Orange issue. So it was an international effort. You know, the tragedy of the American v- returning service member experience when they came back to the United States. In many cases, they were denounced as baby killers. They were rejected and things like that. One of the real tragedies there was that. You know, it's a draft and they went there because they were compelled Mm. to do so. And many of them didn't like what they were doing and they didn't want to be doing what they did. 
And, you know, that's one of the tragedies of the of the draft. And it's one of the tragedies of the ways that Vietnam veterans were were treated when they came back. So they were abandoned in many regards at the cultural level, at the at the sociopolitical level. They were also abandoned in terms of all of the difficulties, all of the fights that they had in terms of getting the care that they needed from the uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs. My feeling from the beginning is, you know, if a Vietnam veteran got sick, who cares what it came from? What does it matter if it came from Agent Orange or it came because you got sick from whatever? If you served in the military, the government should be there to take care of you when you get sick. You protect the United States, the United States should protect you. Yeah. Mm. So that's that's a that's a simple and easy moral obligation for which, you know, the 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 standing issue in international affairs is simply is simply irrelevant. It's a tragedy and it took far too long for the United States to embrace its its veterans and as we're seeing right now, the same thing as I mentioned is coming up with the burn pit issue. As far as the Vietnamese are concerned, you know, in one in one sense, the Vietnamese government is is distinct from the Vietnamese people, and the Vietnamese government, in certain instances, has sought to downplay the Agent Orange issue because it is looking to export things like rice and coffee and fish, and it does not want the international market to associate agricultural products with. Agent Orange exposure. So the Vietnamese government has clearly done less than it could, both in terms of pushing this in issue in international fora and in terms of, you know, helping the Vietnamese people itself. So the Vietnamese government, like the United States government, clearly had could have done more. As for the Vietnamese people themselves, I'll just note on a on a on a general cultural level, an observation. When I went to Vietnam, I fully expected something like being rejected, being treated with uh, revulsion. And the Vietnamese people are very forward looking. And I got no sense that even though I was not personally responsible, I wasn't even born during the time, simply by being an American that uh, I would be regarded as arm at arm's length or even worse. The Vietnamese people are forward looking. They want to be part of the global community. Vietnam today is a is a bustling economy. Um, it's doing wonderfully in terms of trade. And as the Vietnam War recedes further into memory, even though Agent Orange and its health problems certainly do linger, these problems ultimately will fade from memory. But it shouldn't take the passing of generations for that to happen. It should be something where more proactive measures, both by the American and Vietnamese government, are embraced. Well, thank you very much, David. Thank you very much. I think we've had an insight there into a massive insight into a conflict that's going to be debated for, for many, many years yet um, and leave a lasting legacy in many, many areas. So thank you very much for uh, giving up your time uh, to come on to History Rage. It was my great pleasure. Thank you. Feel better? Absolutely. It was a it was a Brilliant. cathartic moment. I appreciate that. Excellent. Well, if you would like to know more, then you can check out the Caltech Heritage Project. Uh, you can see many of their oral histories and interviews on their YouTube channel. And we will post a link to that in the show notes. And you can follow David on Twitter at Ziella David. 
and we will put a link to that in the show notes as well. So uh, once again, David, thank you very much for bringing your apocalypse to now. (laughs) Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage. Or individually, I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying History Rage, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon. And this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes. It'll get you the invite to put questions to future guests. And of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, everyone, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.